we are almost finished with our, uh, our march through John's gospel, at least on Sunday morning, as we're going scene by scene. Uh, today we're in chapter 20. This is the resurrection. And the scene that I've chosen to focus on, the person I've chosen to focus on, is Thomas, which is why we just played that video. But I want to read the entirety of chapter 20. Um, if you would like to get more involved in what we're doing, then uh, uh, download our, our, or subscribe to our podcast. And every Wednesday, I'm going verse by verse through John. We're only in John. On 10 right now in the Wednesday, Wednesday verse by verse or show up. We would love to have you. But uh, let's read John chapter 20. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And uh, ladies, if you want to follow along, there is a New Living in there uh, that you can bring this up on. This will be the entirety of John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Who is that, by the way? That's John. That's the writer of this gospel. He never uses his name. So this is Peter and John. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that, was covered, that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is John again, also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which means my teacher. Uh, and uh, John says that, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I have yet for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them his, the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side, then he won't believe. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. 
The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas explained. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And this is the original conclusion of John. What we think happened is that there was an epilogue that was written just a little bit after this that we'll get into next week. But this also tells us the purpose for John's gospel. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you will have life by the power of his name. Do you believe that? Do you believe that story? You believe that story? That's not just a story. That's history. That's important. an important designation. See, Christianity rises or falls on what we just read. Jesus was a real human being. Amen? He claimed to be the Son of God. Yes? He performed a number of very important, Important, powerful miracles. There are seven of them listed in John, from turning the water into wine and, and uh, until you get to chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. Seven major signs that point to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe he did those things? Right? See, today, increasing numbers of people just hear this and it's just another story. We hear so many stories, don't we? Here's my question. If you're doubting, why do you doubt? Why doubt? Well, I'm going to say this. Christianity was, a, uh, was the cultural norm in the Western world for uh, over a thousand years. It is decreasingly the cultural norm. In fact, the culture has turned against Christ. So I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't shake my faith that other people turn away from their faith and don't believe. It simply shows me that their faith was cultural. It wasn't personal. It wasn't their own faith, right? Well, why do you doubt? Evidence can cause doubt. Thomas didn't doubt without evidence. He didn't say, you know what, I've just come to believe that Jesus isn't really the son of God at all. Uh, you know, I just got disappointed and turned away from him. And that, that happened to a bunch of disciples in John chapter six, John six six six. right? How appropriate. It says, and many who were following him turned away and no longer followed him. And this is after Jesus had been saying some stuff that if you didn't understand on a spiritual level, sounds crazy. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you're not one of my disciples. What? Okay. In the early days of the church, um, there was a rumor started that Christians were actually cannibals. And that they, behind locked doors, they ate flesh and drank blood. Well, of course, you know, these sorts of rumors get started and so forth. Um, Jesus was speaking symbolically, allegorically, spiritually. And uh, the mind that is not spiritual is not going to understand the spiritual things. And so they turned away from him. But that wasn't Thomas. In fact, in chapter 11, Jesus, uh, at the end of chapter 10, they had tried to stone Jesus two, two times. 
right? In chapter eight, they picked up stones to stone him. Now, this isn't gonna happen because Jesus said, I'm gonna lay down my life. Nobody's gonna take it away from me. And he also said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw him into myself. That lifted up was a clear indicator that he was going to be crucified. And that is what the Old Testament prophesies. If you read uh, Isaiah 53, if you read Psalm 22, it's obvious that you're talking about crucifixion, at least when you get to the other side of crucifixion. Nonetheless, Jesus is going to give up his life. Nobody's going to take it from him. So they tried to stone him at the end of chapter eight and he walked away from them. They tried to stone him again toward the end of chapter 10. We're coming to that, uh, that place in our Wednesday Bible study. And he got away from them again. And then he went on the other side of the Jordan and hung out there for a while. Okay. Um, and then Lazarus died and they come and tell him, you know, the one that you love is has is sick. He hadn't died yet. Jesus stayed there for uh, another two days, knowing that Lazarus had died, and then went back. Now, they were all afraid that Jesus was going to be stoned, so they didn't want to go back, even though Lazarus had been sick. Plus, to be honest, in chapter 4 of John, uh, Jesus simply said, your, your, your son is healed, right? The, the royal official son who came to Jesus, and he was healed from that moment. Jesus doesn't have to show up and stand there in a physical form in order to accomplish God's will. He simply speaks, and it is, and that's what happened. So perhaps the disciples had that degree of faith, and they knew Jesus didn't have to go back um, to Bethany, which is just about a mile from Jerusalem, where he would be under the threat of death again. But guess what? Thomas said, let's go with him so that we may die with him. Thomas was hardcore. We kind of think of Peter as being hardcore sometimes, but Thomas really was hardcore. He's like, you know what? If we're going to go back and die with him, let's go back and die with him. I'm here to follow Jesus. So Thomas wasn't some weak uh, disciple. He wasn't someone that was like, oh my gosh, I'm just disappointed in Jesus. You know, that's really Judas. Judas was like, man, I thought this guy was going to rock it to the top. I tell you what, I'll turn him over to the religious officials and I'll force his hand and then he'll fight back. And he didn't. He took money for it. I mean, you know, Judas didn't really ever have faith, right? Judas believed in what he saw. And when what he saw didn't follow his preconceived notions, he stopped believing. Wow, is that you? That's a lot of people. You already have ideas, and you come to church to get those ideas confirmed or affirmed. And if they're not, if you're contradicted, if you're challenged, then you're frail and you walk away. Well, that's nobody in this room. I'm not doing one of these things and, you know, pointing uh, my finger at you. I simply need all of us to recognize that there might be doubt creeping in even to the hearts and minds of those that are the faithful. Why do you doubt? Well, evidence can cause doubt. Thomas saw the evidence, Right? Jesus actually died on the cross. Even the most skeptical scholars will say, no, there was a Jesus from Nazareth, first century rabbi, and he did die on a Roman cross. Those that have gone outside of those boundaries are not historians. They're not following history, okay? They're just following their preconceived notions. So Jesus really did die on a Roman cross. The Romans were really good at killing people. They really were. They kept people terrified of them. That's how they kept people in line. You didn't cross the Roman Empire. And if you did, then you might end up naked, bleeding to death, suffocating on a cross. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He really did die. They took him down off the cross. They took a dead body off the cross. And then they put it in a tomb that was very close by. Now, uh, in the previous chapter, 
we see that there were two important individuals who validated and verified that Jesus was put in a tomb. One's name was Joseph, and he, he was from a town called Arimathea. He was wealthy. He had an empty tomb. It was near where they crucified, uh, the, the, uh, where the Romans crucified people. He went to Pilate. He got permission to take Jesus' body, uh, to take uh, charge of Jesus' body. And then he and someone who we met earlier in John's gospel, Nicodemus, took Jesus' body or took charge of it. They may have had servants with him to carry him and so forth. And they put it in this new tomb, right? Everybody knew that that was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were both on the Sanhedrin. These were people that were well-respected, And so nobody could disagree with the fact that this crucified man was taken down and was put in a new tomb. And then a stone was rolled in front of it. There was a seal that was put over the stone. Soldiers were put there to guard the tomb. Okay. In spite of that, early on Sunday morning, that stone was rolled away and eyewitnesses uh, some of whom we just read about, saw that Jesus had risen or they received testimony from uh, these variously described angels or, or young men in white who said Jesus had been taken uh, or Jesus had been raised, right? At the end of Matthew's gospel, we find that the Jewish authorities bribed the guards, the ones who were supposed to be watching the tomb, they bribed those guards and said, we want you to tell anybody that asks that the disciples stole the body. And so that rumor was spread from that point forward. Um, But nonetheless, if there had not been a tomb that Jesus had been put in, if there had not been an empty tomb, they wouldn't have had to start this rumor, right? So this is evidence. Jesus really died on the cross. He was really put in a tomb. Everybody knew where the tomb was. It was verified because it was the the tomb that was owned by a very well-respected religious official, political official as well, in their country. That's evidence. Thomas knew the evidence. And the other thing that we all know is this. People don't just rise from the dead, do they? You ever seen anybody rise from the dead? That's not a daily occurrence, Okay. Now, the Jewish people did expect from the Old Testament prophecy that at the end of time, God was going to raise the dead and judge people. Okay. But nobody had an idea in their mind that someone would rise from the dead before judgment day. Okay. And yet here is this, this good news for, for Christians, for believers, right? This story that is being spread. Is it history or just a story that the, the man that died on the cross who had performed notable miracles and signs, who was crucified because of the, the, the pressure from religious authorities and was crucified by the Roman uh, authorities, that he really was put in that tomb. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Okay, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that. Right? I've seen the evidence. I don't believe anything unless there's evidence. Well, see, he knew part of the evidence. He had experienced part of the evidence. And he knew, just like you and I know, that people don't just rise from the dead. But was Jesus just anybody? Was he just any person? No, the whole point to John's gospel, the whole point to Jesus coming to earth is to show that Jesus, the son of God, came to earth 
and bore our sins to the cross and died and rose, right? So um, Thomas was responding to evidence. You may have heard certain evidence. It may be good evidence. It may not be good evidence, okay? But you heard evidence and that may have caused you to doubt. Emotions cause people to doubt. The death of Jesus was traumatic, Right? Their idea of Messiah was that he was going to be a ruler. He was going to be a king. He was going to take over. He was going to overthrow Rome. And they were going to have their own nation again. And instead, Rome crucified him. That was traumatic. You may have been through some trauma in your life as well. And that trauma may have caused you to say, where's God in all of this? Right? And I understand that. Uh, you know, just viewing the news in our day can cause you to ask that question, right? Emotions can cause people to doubt. The disciples went from highest hope on Palm Sunday to the depths of despair five days later on Good Friday because they saw their, uh, their, their leader, their rabbi crucified. However, agenda is often the real reason for doubt, do you have an ulterior motive? Do you have an agenda? Do you want to create distance between yourself and God? Do you want to disbelieve in God's existence because you don't want to listen to what he has to say? You don't want to kowtow to that biblical morality? Friedrich Nietzsche called it slave morality. And so rather than deal with whether God is real or whatever, you just say he's not, Right? And you throw up doubt like a wall. Some people don't want to believe because their deeds are evil in the sight of God. And no God means no accountability. Now, there's a lot of things that people are doing today that are not considered evil by other human beings, right? But they are evil in the sight of God. Now, I'm not going to go through some list of sins and throw some things out there and create division and cause drama, but I'm just going to tell you... Um, God laid out the rules when he laid down the law, okay? Go right out that door, turn to the right, and you'll see the Ten Commandments up on the wall. That hasn't changed. And we violate almost all of them in our culture, and we don't call that evil, right? Well, when people want to do whatever they want to do, they don't want anybody over them. They don't want anybody calling the shots. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. They're like, well, I just don't believe in God. I just don't believe in God. You know what that's a lot like? That's a lot like finding out that there's been a, a, a summons for you and uh, you're going to have to appear before a judge. You know what a summons is? Okay. Be careful. There's fakers out there. Um, I got a call on a, I have a telephone line that I've had for well over 20 years and it's a Google voice line now. And nobody calls me on that line right? Unless it's somebody that I haven't talked to in a million years. And I, have a, I had a message on that line that said, yes, and uh, there is a summons for you and uh, you must sign some papers and this is the number that we have. And, uh, and I was like, uh, yeah, no, there's not. Okay. Because there's a lot of fakers out there, right? But what if you have some pretty clear indication that, yeah, there really is a summons out there for you. And you just choose to say, you know what? I don't believe that, right? 
It's not a matter of, you know, a scammer calling an old number and I'm pretty well aware that there's no summons out for me, okay? Although, by the way, I did wonder. I was like, well, a summons for what? What did I do? I mean, seriously, you know, you got to have done something to get called before the judge and get a summons. But if there really is a summons out there for you, saying I don't believe that will not make it go away. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? Saying I don't believe in God is not going to make God go away. He's given you a big buffer. He's given you a lot of freedom. Man, you can do a lot of stuff, good and bad, on your own. But there's coming a day. Whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, there's coming a day when you're going to stand before God in judgment. It is appointed for every man and woman once to die and then comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. I won't get you to raise your hand, but how many of you are late all the time? Yeah, that's an appointment you won't be late for. That's an appointment you will keep. You will stand before God in judgment. That's reality. You say, well, that's what you say. So the Bible says, okay, and I believe the Bible because the Bible is the word of God. I think what I'm going to do coming uh, next week, we're going to have a, um, the last uh, scene out of John, John 21, the restoration of Peter. Great message. I hope you'll come. But I think after that, I'm going to do at least two weeks uh, of messages on apologetics, right? Proving the existence of God, proving the authenticity and authority of the Bible, all right? So you might be interested in that if this message is interesting to you. Nonetheless, okay, um, you may have an agenda. The scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Said in his heart, that means he's thinking to himself, oh yeah, there's no God. There's no God. Why? It follows it up. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. Now, that doesn't mean their deeds are vile in the sight of other humans. That means their deeds are vile in the sight of God. That's why they don't want to have anything to do with God. That's Psalm 14.1, and it's repeated in Psalm 53.1. And then Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. You know, I have heard uh, testimonies, and they are testimonies, they're their stories, uh, by people who have perhaps been in church and they choose to be atheists and they talk about, hey, you know, there was a sudden freedom when I said there was no more God. Well, yeah, because now there's no rules for you to live by, right? Now you're just going to make your own rules. So that sounds good, except that's not going to be good at the end right? And you'll also find that when you step across those lines that God has drawn, you're, you're dancing around outside the boundaries. You're also working outside what God has designed the way he has, he has made you, right? So I've used this story uh, a bunch of different times. Uh, so if you've been around me for a while, you've already heard this, but we had a, um, back when Craig and Rachel were uh, teenagers in our youth group, um, we had a young lady, uh, Shauna, who was uh, in our youth group. And she had, what did she have, like a Camaro or something? She had a red, this cool red car, okay? Um, and this, she's the sweetest girl in the world. So if you meet her, you can tell her that I told this story again and I'm continuously embarrassing her, even though she's not around us anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, she pulled up to a gas station and you know she's got this pretty little red car and she pulled up to the pump that was green. 
you understand what this means, right? And she pulled that uh, hose off of the there and she filled her car up with diesel fuel. I'm here to tell you, you have the freedom to put diesel in your car. You can have at it. But what's going to happen? It ain't going to run, right? Diesel fuel is oil. Did you know this? A diesel engine doesn't have spark plugs. It actually works off the pressure of the cylinder slamming up against the top and it creates an, an explosion. But diesel fuel is oil. It will not burn like gasoline. It will not run your car. You can scream and jump up and down and say, I believe, I believe, I believe there is no God, but there is a God. And you can dance around outside of those lines and say, man, I just feel so free. And you're just putting diesel fuel in your high test car, Right? You need to do what God has said because he's designed you that way. There's a purpose. God's not being arbitrary and just saying, well, you know, it's, why should you do it? Because I said so and I'm God. Just do it. It's like, right? Now, sometimes you have to tell your kids that because you don't want to go into some long explanation of why you're laying down some rules for them. But I'm looking at some good parents. Do you, do you consider yourself a pretty good parent? Do you make rules arbitrarily? I bet you don't. I bet you make rules because you want your kids to stay safe and healthy, right? Um, you know, perfect example of this is toddlers. They just like to run around and do whatever they want to do, right? And they don't know. So, you know, we've got a street out here. In fact, there's, there's people working out there right now. It's great. I can look through the door and, and see it. Um, this street out here is not super well-traveled, but there, there are cars that spin around the corner all the time, okay? So let's say you've got a toddler. A couple of you have toddlers, and your toddler wants to run out in the street. And you've repeatedly told your toddler, do not run out in the street. And so you have to grab your toddler by the hand and drag them back in so that they won't run out in the street and get run over. There's a reason for your rule, right? God has a purpose for those commandments. He's got a purpose for his rules, he designed the universe, he designed you. And you can't just do whatever you want to do. You, there, like I said, there's a buffer of grace right now for sure, okay? And you can get away with a lot of stuff, okay? So, you know, let's go the opposite direction. You know, you've got an internal combustion engine, and instead of putting diesel fuel in it, uh, you put racing fuel in it. Well, it might run for a little while, but it's going to run entirely too hot, and that's not going to work either. You don't just do whatever you want to do. You got to kind of look at the way things are supposed to be and say, you know what? I'm going to have a better life. I'm going to be freer if I'm walking inside these boundaries that God has drawn because that reveals his design. Well, so there it is. Um, we need to evaluate carefully all of the evidence, not just what is convenient or what agrees with our underlying agenda or our preconceived notions, Right? Um, so all Thomas could see was the death of Jesus out in front of him, right? Initially, he was unwilling to evaluate this eyewitness testimony. He wasn't willing to evaluate that because he was so um, traumatized by the death of Jesus. But he needed to, and you need to, evaluate all of the evidence. Now, I've gone back um, because I'm considering... 
uh, doing this little apologetic series just for a couple of weeks. I also would like for you, those of you that have kids, raise your hand if you have kids. Raise your hand if you have kids. Good. Okay. If your kid is school age, especially if your kid is uh, what they call them, tweens, right? About nine on up to about 12, you need to start talking to them about apologetics. They're, they're very smart. You do know that, right? I know you know that. They're smart. And they may be smiling and nodding at you and giving you the right answers like a bobblehead. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But there may be doubts percolating in their little minds. And it used to be that you could wait all the way until college before you got seriously challenged when it concerns, you know, being a theist, that is believing in a, a, a personal, all-powerful God. But I'm guaranteeing you, they're, uh, they're seeing those challenges much earlier now. In high school, maybe even in middle school. And those challenges may be coming from teachers, may be coming from textbooks, but they're definitely coming from a culture that is toxic to Christian faith. You can't let the culture raise your kids. You heard me say this a million times. You need to have conversations with them. And I do mean conversations, not just sermons. Conversations. Find out what they really think, not just what they feel, right? But what they really, and they may not know what they think yet. And that's when you invest in them and start giving them, give them evidence. I'm telling you, there's evidence, right? Good, solid evidence for the historical reality of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried and rose on the third day. There's good evidence, right? There's good evidence for the existence of God. Now that doesn't mean that everybody is willing to accept the evidence because as I've made the case uh, very clearly, some people just don't wanna hear it because they wanna go on in their own, uh, their own personal freedom, you would say, okay? We need to evaluate all the evidence, not just what is convenient or easy. There is a series of books by a fellow named J. Warner Wallace. Have you ever heard of this guy? Right, I want you to say the name back to me, J. Warner Wallace. I want you to remember his name. He was a cold case detective on the Los Angeles Police Department for 30 years. His wife said, I want you to go to church with me. He's a hardcore atheist. His daddy was on the police department before him for 30 years. His daddy was a hardcore atheist. He was the facts, ma'am, just the facts, right? This guy solved cases that had been put away, right? They, they say that unless they find uh, the, the murderer within 48 hours, they may not ever find him. This guy was finding murderers dozens of years later, okay? And he employed a set of tools to do that. So he went to church with his wife. He's like, you know what? I'm gonna use my tools and let's see if this Christianity thing is legit or not. And he did, and now he's an apologist. He's written three books. The first one I can recommend is called Cold Case Christianity. Say that. I'm not you know, leading a cult or something. I just want you to remember. Otherwise, my words just go, you know, what do you think? What is the author's name again? And what's his book called? Start with that one. He's written three books. Parents, I had you raise your hand earlier. He has written children's version of all of these books. I really, really think you need to get cold case Christianity and read it for yourself. 
and you need to get the children's version and sit down with your kid, have your child read it. And I don't, you know, they have various reading levels, but this is aimed at tweens, nine to 12 year olds. Okay. Give them that book and you give them homework. Oh, I read that. No, no, no. I want you to read this. And there, you know, I read part of a, his latest book is called Forensic Faith. And it's trying to teach people how to give an answer for their faith. Okay. Cold case, cold case Christianity just gives um, good evidence for what the scripture uh, presents as, as Christ in history. Okay. But this latest one, Forensic Faith, is more for the, the, the adults or the kid that is, they're solid in their faith, but they want to be able to give an answer for it, okay? And so it is an apologetic, not just for the existence of God and the integrity of the scripture, but an apologetic for apologetics. That is, you really do need to be able to give an answer for your faith, right? Well, why do you believe? Because I was raised in church. Oh, why do you believe? Well, I don't know. I just feel that way. Well, none of that's going to be convincing to somebody who is a thinker. They may have evaluated the evidence that's been presented to them, and they've only received part of the evidence. And so now they don't believe in the existence of God or the uh, integrity of the scripture. Okay. So J. Warner Wallace, Cold Case Christianity. There you go. Uh, we may do a longer apologetic series in here, which I've done uh, about a decade ago uh, from another author uh, and speaker and debater whose name is William Lane Craig. What is his name? Now, if you're not a reader, you just need to go to YouTube and enter William Lane Craig. It's not the same guy, but you can remember Craig, right? Craig, William Lane Craig, and watch all these debates that he's had with different people. This dude's brilliant, right? Um, he's more intelligent than a lot of the people that he's debating, but they think they're so intelligent and they're so proud about what they think that they're not willing to even receive or respond to the answers that he's offering them, okay? Sometimes, as I said, people disbelieve because of evidence, but they have not been presented with or responded to or received all of the evidence, okay? Um, so eyewitness testimony counts as evidence, and so even though Thomas didn't believe, he was willing to return to see for himself. Um, so what I want to do is I want to uh, show you another little piece of video up here that dramatizes that moment when uh, John and Peter, or the moment after John and Peter had uh, gone to the tomb. So go ahead and play that, ladies. Peter, stop! We'll get the guys to help with the search and then we'll divide up, all right? We'll have Andrew take the north, Bartholomew will take the bottom. Peter, stop! Look, I'm just as confused about this as you are. Someone stole him. That's the only logical explanation, John. Wait, 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 okay? Look, what we witnessed today. I, I, the guards, they took him. We have to move swiftly. We have to rebury the body properly. Look, Peter, stop! Okay. We need to go tell the others. Tell them what? What we saw. We saw nothing. Exactly. John, do you not understand that they are trying to stop us? That's why Jesus kept waking us up to pray. That's why they got to Judas. That's why. That's why they arrested Jesus. Just the other day, I was looking at him. I was looking him in the eye and I, and I told him that I loved him and that I would follow him to the ends of the earth.
He was supposed to be our king. He is the king. When we were in the tomb, I remember something Jesus said. The linens were just lying there. That they, they were just lying there. No, no. Think bigger. Look, all of this, all of it was supposed to be preparing us for this moment, for that empty tomb. We just couldn't see it. Couldn't see what? Okay. When Mary came back and said that the tomb was empty and that the angel of the Lord was there, that's when it started to come back. John, enough. We can reminisce about this later. Jesus is missing. We have to go find him. He's not missing. That, that's the point. Look, he was trying to tell us about this. Jesus was preparing us for this. He's risen. Peter, he's a different kind of king and he always was. <sighs> Peter, do you remember that night Jesus asked us who we thought he was? When he called me Satan? Yeah. Yeah, I called him. Lord. Lord. Lord of all, Peter. We just didn't understand. But he's gone. No. He's risen. Did it. Did it. He did it. He did it. He did it. He did it. Peter, he's risen. He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. He did it. He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. Those of us who believe can be just as emotional as John and Peter were in that video, but those of us that don't believe, eh, we just kind of shrug our shoulders. Listen, Jesus predicted he would die on the cross. He could have been executed by stoning. He wasn't. He died on the cross. Jesus promised he would rise from the dead. The empty tomb impressed John, who wrote our gospel, with the reality that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. John was the only one that believed on the basis of the empty tomb. John hadn't seen any angels. He didn't have an angel come and talk to him. John had not yet seen the risen Christ. But when he entered that tomb and he looked at the grave clothes that were just lying there, he said, he's risen. He believed because Jesus predicted he would die on the cross and promised he would rise from the dead. And now he was seeing an empty tomb. Now, Thomas, to his credit, he accepted the eyewitness testimony from the others who had seen the risen Christ, including Mary Magdalene. And later Jesus appeared to Peter. In fact, as you, as you heard in the, uh, in the account in John chapter 20, Jesus appeared in the room with the 11 now. Okay, well, the 10, I guess, because Thomas uh, wasn't among them. And of course, Judas wasn't among them. But nonetheless, Jesus appeared to them, right? Um, Thomas missed out that Sunday. <laughs> Listen, you know, this is kind of a, maybe a cheap shot, but you miss out when you don't come to church. Thomas wasn't at church that Sunday and Jesus breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Whoa. And then he gave them authority. He said, those you forgive will be forgiven. Those you don't, won't. Thomas wasn't there for that. All right. But you know what? To his credit, Thomas showed up the next Sunday. They said, hey, Thomas, dude, you missed out. Jesus showed up. What? No. Okay, fine, fine. I'll, I'll come and check it out. That's all I can tell you. That's all I can promise you. I'll come and check it out. Okay. And that might be you here today. I just came to check it out. That's fine. And you know what? Jesus rewarded Thomas with a visitation, a personal visitation. He showed back up again eight days later, the following Sunday. And he knew what Thomas had said. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in the wounds in his hands. I'm not going to believe unless I can stick my hand up in his side. And ladies, if you're listening up there, there is a picture, the Caravaggio painting. And I sent it out and I posted this week. And if you can put it up there, that would be great. But um, he, he said, I'm not going to believe until that happens. And so Jesus shows up. And this is a great painting. I love this painting. I really do. I used to use this in the early days of our church to just kind of represent maybe people that were doubting and wanted to come and check Jesus out. Um, So Jesus said, here I am. Put your hand right there. Here I am. Put your hand right there. Put your finger there. Put your hand right there. And then he said, quit disbelieving. Quit doubting. And I like the way the New American Standard says it, and be a believer. Guess what? The very next statement is the greatest statement, the greatest confession of faith in the entirety of the New Testament. What did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He went from the depth of absolute despair He'd been traumatized by the death of Jesus on that cross. He disbelieved. He doubted. He wasn't even going to be a part of the disciple band anymore. But he listened to the eyewitnesses and he showed up and Jesus visited him. And then he made the confession. Now, you would think, at least I would think, that Jesus would say, that's amazing, Thomas. I'm so glad that you have finally come to believe in me. Thomas, that is the greatest confession that anybody has made yet. That's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? He said, you believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, you and I, need to believe on the basis of Jesus' words, his prediction, his promise of his resurrection. We need to believe on the basis of the empty tomb, and we need to believe on the basis of the testimony of those eyewitnesses which are reliably recorded in the New Testament. That's the offer. So why do you doubt? Stop doubting and be a believer. Friend, it's a choice. You look at the evidence and you step out on a limb. I'm banking it all on Jesus. Now, um, I'll say this. If you're sitting out there and you're saying, you know what, I don't even believe God exists. I'm listening to all that stuff you're saying, but I don't even believe God exists. Okay. I'm going to make a bet with you. I'm not the originator of this bet. This is called Pascal's Wager, okay? Here's the bet. If what you say is true, and there is no God, 
And Jesus is just another mythological figure, a dying God figure, a misunderstood rabbi, whatever. If you're right and there's no God, what's going to happen when I die? I'm just going to die. And I will have lived a life full of purpose. However, if I'm right and you're wrong, what's going to happen when you die? Not a good scene. So, I'm not just saying, are you willing to bet your life? I'm saying, are you willing to bet eternity that there is no God? If I were you, I would at least consider the evidence. And if you've gravitated away from Jesus, because maybe you've been a cultural Christian all these years, you didn't realize that you were just being carried along by the currents of culture, and now the culture has turned against Christ, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I believe that anymore. Maybe you need to stop before you go over the edge. Today is your opportunity. I'm not going to give some emotional invitation. Pastor Craig and I will be down here if you want to pray, okay? But I will say this. It begins with receiving or accepting Christ intellectually. It really does. But it doesn't stop there. Then you need to open yourself up. You need to ask him to come and live with you by his spirit. Be a part of your life. See, the confession of faith that saves is Jesus is, Jesus is Lord. That means he's the boss. So start by receiving him, accepting him, but don't stop there. Open up your mouth, open up your heart, believe that he rose from the dead and confess that Jesus is Lord.